For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access to your populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order. From Mediators World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Week in Review, presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan. This show is often hard on domestic cats. Felines, if you will. So, for episode 130 of Cal's Week in Review, I thought, why change it up? Have I mentioned recently that they kill an estimated 2 billion birds a year in the U.S.? A recent study in the journal Ecosphere set out to discover how much of a cat's diet is made up of the animals it kills. By identifying the molecular isotopes of prey animals and then looking for those same isotopes in the whiskers of cats, the scientists could see not just what the cats had been eating, but who. The researchers did this to test the argument of a lot of feral cat programs around the country, which say that if you give cats a high-protein diet, then they will have less motivation to hunt. Kind of makes sense, until I think of my diet, and realize that when I get sick of mule deer, I switch not off of protein, but to other proteins, birds or fish. If this protein replacement theory were correct, you'd see the results in the keratin of the cat whiskers. Before the feeding program, you'd see, let's say, 99% of the whisker isotopes coming from wild birds and mice. And after the feeding program started, you'd see 99% of the isotopes coming from, like, uh, Fancy Feast or whatever cat food is these days. Just like us, cats are what they eat. Incidentally, you may remember from our Venom episode that keratin is also what makes up the segments of a rattlesnake's rattle, as well as our hair and fingernails. 
Cat whiskers were used for the analysis because they were easy to sample without messing with the cat too much. But if we took a chunk of a rattler's tail or a sliver of your fingernail, we could see just how much of the snake's diet was made up of chipmunks and how much of your diet was made up of whitetail or squirrel or Cheetos. It's not easy being cheesy. Pretty cool. Anyway, back to killer cats. The Ecosphere study found that only 3 to 4% of the cat's diet was made up of prey animals, no matter what their diet was. And changing the diet didn't change how many dead animals they brought home. Other studies have followed cats around and observed that their hunting behavior is almost completely uncoupled from hunger. As in, they hunt and kill for fun, not food. Or, if you don't believe that cats can have fun, they hunt because they're programmed to do it. Like little tiny fur-covered terminators with retractable claws. Cybertine Systems Model 101. I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over metal endoskeleton. Now, I'm not fooling myself that this here show is playing over the speakers at too many feral cat rescue offices, but just in case, how about taking the budget devoted to feeding and turn it over to brightly colored collars, which are the most effective solution to cat predation? While we're at it, maybe I should get the Meat Eater Business Development Team to reach out to Birds Be Safe Collars and make them the co-flagship sponsor of this show, alongside Steel Chainsaws. Or, you know, stay with me here, maybe we convince Steel to add cat collars to their lineup of fine saws, pruners, and leaf blowers. You know, we're just coughing up a spitball here. Maybe Andrew Lloyd Webber, the creator of the musical Cats, could be the spokesman for the new uh, steel cat collar line. You may have seen that he hated the film adaptation of Cats so much that he went out and adopted a dog. The ultimate cat person bought a dog. Change is possible. Hope is out there. Just not through diet. Get an obnoxious cat collar, cat people. This week, we've got Maine whitetails, Montana elk, and Michigan bird feeders. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was spent cleaning layers of North Dakota mud off of everything. Driving back from North Dakota, unloading and cleaning birds from North Dakota, and cooking a couple of very nice meals. First, the thing I know you care about the most, the snort report. <coughs> Old Snorticus, before we left North Dakota, rounded up some more pheasants. We took a walk with a landowner and dentist named Ben, who did some really impressive wing shooting and doubled at the end of our first walk as in he shot two roosters out of the sky. Snort sprang into action and found one rooster immediately. Then it seemed she had the second, but came out of the tall stuff empty. After serious searching, beating the brush, we had to call it, which is terrible. Lots of excuses, brush was too thick, too much bird scent, got a young dog, and the one excuse that I hate the most is, you know, it happens. And it's true, wound loss does happen, but you shouldn't get comfortable with it. Only silver lining here, and it's because anywhere there are good game bird populations, there are good raptor populations. Ben was shooting bismuth, so at least we only killed one bird. 
we looped around and walked to Shelter Belt, which, for those of you who don't know, is like several rows of trees and brush, usually a mix of whatever the country can sustain. And that uh, row of trees is uh, supposed to like make a little break so the wind doesn't scour the soil off of fields, like a long-term soil erosion mitigator. And it can also be like a wildlife uh, habitator, I think. And this particular shelter belt, there was little to no undergrowth, so the snort had to be continually called back, or I like to call it brake checking. Let her know that this is a coordinated effort, not a dog chase bird scenario. We found a handful of birds that were willing to hold long enough to shoot at. I crippled a bird that ran into the brush just as Snort was coming out of it. Determined not to lose this one, I brought Snort to heel and put her on his track. Three times she ran in on his scent and three times she flushed a hen, which was so painful because I wanted that bird so bad. We dropped Ben's hat on the spot and decided to keep pushing the belt with the idea that the wounded bird was going to end up, you know, at the end. We didn't go too far when Ben shouted, there he is! And after a long sprint, Snort returned with the bird. At the end of the day, we had one lost rooster and five in the bag, and Snort with a bunch more experience, which was, you know, certainly my main objective. One observation. Plenty of birds but noticeably young birds. In fact, I flushed a rooster on the Montana side of things that hadn't grown enough rooster feathers to confidently be shot. I spoke with a friend in South Dakota yesterday where they had just had their opening day, and he reported the same thing. In Montana, I've heard most folks say that there was an extra round of nesting due to a late hatch of grasshoppers. In the Dakotas, a late rain caused a quick but thick bloom of green grass. Lots of young roosters, probably around the eight-week age, underweight with very short tails. But still, lots of roosters. One last note before we move on. I finally missed with my new Weatherby 20 gauge. It was bound to happen, right? But I got five roosters in a row. Then I missed, and shooting out of spite, not out of smarts, I hit with my second barrel. That was the crippled rooster that went on the wild run. That was a shot I never should have taken, and we got lucky to recover that bird. Snort may not say the same, but that's my take on the situation. (coughs) Moving on to the main deer desk. That's M-A-I-N-E. As you probably know, state fish and wildlife departments rely on hunters to manage game populations. If populations grow too large, agencies issue more permits. If those populations are hit with a hard winter or some type of disease, agencies issue fewer permits. But what happens when issuing more permits isn't enough to control a growing population? The Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife is about to find out. According to a great report by the Bangor Daily News, the white-tailed deer population in Maine is too large and hunters haven't been able to shrink the herd. As any East Coast resident can tell you, overabundance of deer can be a major problem, not only for the health of the deer herd, but also for the general public. Over 100 people die each year from deer-related traffic accidents in the U.S., and there were an estimated 1.5 million deer-related car insurance claims between 2019 and 2020. Whitetail have also been linked to increased rates of Lyme's disease because they carry the ticks that spread the illness. 
There are about 300,000 whitetail in Maine, and biologists would like to get that number down. They've tried issuing more permits, but hunters aren't taking enough does to get the population under control. Over the past handful of years, we've kind of reached a plateau or a threshold where we're just not able to achieve any significant increase in the harvest of antlerless deer despite issuing a lot of permits said Maine State Wildlife official Nathan Webb. The state issued a record-breaking 153,000 permits for any type of whitetail, but less than 6% of those permits were used on adult does. The state is unlikely to recruit more hunters unless they've found a secret sauce that no other Fish and Wildlife Department has been able to find. So, the question is, how can Maine Fish and Wildlife encourage more hunters to take more female deer? There are several proposals that agency officials are considering. The first is to change the, quote, any deer permit system to one that allows hunters to bag an additional antlerless deer. Right now, Maine hunters with a valid big game hunting license can apply for a free permit that allows them to hunt any type of deer within a designated wildlife management district. This first proposal would change the any deer permit to an antlerless deer permit, allowing hunters to harvest an antlerless deer in addition to another deer, whether a buck or a doe. Deer biologists say this proposal would encourage hunters to bag a doe at the beginning of the season. You've probably found yourself in this situation. You hunt for a buck all season, and on the last day, you decide to shoot a doe so you can at least take some venison home. Of course, on that last day, there are no deer anywhere in sight, and you end up eating tag soup. With two tags, one for exclusively antlerless deer, Maine hunters would be more incentivized to take a doe on the first day of the season and keep hunting for a buck later in the year. Maine's Fish and Wildlife Department may also decide to charge a fee for an antlerless permit rather than offering a free any deer permit. You may be saying, what? They couldn't give these things away and get people to slap them on does. How are they going to sell them? That sounds counterintuitive. But how many times have you done something or used something just because you paid for it? That automatic can opener you bought is loud, messy, and harder to use than a hand crank opener. But, you know, you paid for it at that garage sale, so you're going to use it. The same logic applies here. If hunters are forced to pay a small fee for their permits, they're less likely to let that money go to waste. Fewer people will apply, but that will also give Maine Fish and Wildlife a better estimate of how many deer will be taken each year. Other proposals would change the lottery system to allow hunters to choose only two wildlife management districts and restrict permit swapping. As you can imagine, Maine deer hunters have a variety of opinions on these proposals, the Maine Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife is currently accepting comments on these proposed changes. They're conducting a survey on the Maine Deer Hunters Facebook page as well. The page isn't open to the public, but the moderators kindly gave me access. Right now, it looks like the majority of respondents support the proposal to issue antlerless deer permits, but Maine hunters don't like the prospect of paying for permits that used to be free. If you live in Maine and would like to weigh in, Go to Facebook and search for Maine, that's M-A-I-N-E, Deer Hunters. Before we move on, I would like to give a shout out to the good folks in the Pine Tree State 
for the work they've done to recover their state's whitetail population. A decade ago, Maine deer were in trouble, especially in the northern, eastern, and western parts of the state, which is the long way of saying most of the state. The Department of Wildlife took action, developed a plan, and hunters and conservationists got on board. Today's overabundance of deer is a different kind of problem, but at the risk of stating the obvious, I'd much rather have too many deer than too few. Good work. Maine deer hunters weigh in now, or don't complain later. Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were onto something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam motor treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without on X. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Moving on to the bird feed desk. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer vetoed a bill last week that would have erased restrictions on feeding birds in the state. Residents are permitted to feed birds under current law, but they must use feeders that are inaccessible to deer and elk. Michigan's Natural Resources Commission banned deer baiting in much of the state in 2018, and those prohibitions also apply to bird feeders that might be accessible to cervids. This year, 
Representative Ken Borton introduced legislation that would have removed those restrictions and replaced them with two simple criteria. Feed must be within 300 feet of a residence, and there must be no more than two gallons of feed on the ground at a time. As long as Michiganders meet those two conditions, they won't have to worry about whether deer and elk are accessing or congregating around the bird food. The bill passed the House with the support of a handful of Democrats and passed along party lines in the Senate, with Republicans voting for and Democrats voting against. Governor Whitmer, who has also vetoed bills lifting the deer baiting ban, vetoed this bill on the grounds that it would have contributed to the spread of chronic wasting disease among deer and elk. The bill would, quote, cast aside sound disease management principles to loosen restrictions on deer and elk feeding, threatening our agricultural and hunting industries. Both the Michigan Department of Natural Resources and the Michigan Farm Bureau opposed the bill back in April. The bill's proponents, meanwhile, argued that well-intentioned Michiganders who want to feed birds and squirrels face misdemeanor and felony charges if bird seed accidentally falls from a feeder and is eaten by a servant. Overly broad government rules punish individuals who simply place food in their yards, even to keep animals from starving, said Representative Borton. My plan would have protected citizens from unjust fines and allowed recreational bird and wildlife feeding. Why would you say something so controversial yet so brave? Important to note that recreational bird and squirrel feeding is allowed. First-time violators of the baiting ban could be charged with a misdemeanor and three violations result in a felony. I'm not aware of any well-intentioned bird feeders who have been charged with any crime in Michigan, but I can see why potential charges might worry bird and squirrel lovers. Running just below the surface of this debate is a much larger debate about deer baiting and chronic wasting disease. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last decade, you know what I'm talking about. Many state wildlife agencies have banned deer baiting because when cervids congregate, chronic wasting disease spreads more quickly. Hunters might not like it, but these wildlife biologists are following the science on this one. Dozens of studies have shown that CWD spreads faster as animals congregate together around bait sites and food plots. The question, of course, is whether this particular CWD mitigation strategy can justify banning practices that have been used by hunters in the East and Midwest for generations. Hunting on small plots of land in thickly wooded areas is more difficult if you can't attract deer to your property with a delicious pile of calories. Hunters are understandably upset about baiting bands if they think it will make deer more difficult to harvest. If you want my opinion, I think we should look to the long-term health of the deer herd. If baiting quickens the spread of CWD and makes controlling the disease more difficult, Hunters should be willing to change their strategies to meet the challenge. Hunting is, after all, conservation, right? It's on t-shirts, it's gotta be true. Michigan hunters seem to be doing just that. While the total deer harvest dropped a little after the baiting ban was implemented, 2020's deer harvest was higher than 2016, 2017, and 2018. While the recent proposed and vetoed legislation may have been an honest attempt to prevent little old ladies 
from the slim possibility of being ticketed with a felony because of sloppy bird feeders, my hat's off to Governor Whitmer and her staff for stopping the bill regardless. I think we can safely leave bird feeder enforcement to the law and bet that any tickets are written to those little old ladies who have sloppy bird feeders and choose to kill really big bucks off of them. Moving on to the law enforcement desk. Wardens, as usual, have their hands very full with hunting seasons in full swing. Oregon general buck season opened at the beginning of October, and Oregon Fish and Wildlife have deployed wildlife enforcement decoys to nab poachers. Because this is audio, I'm pausing to say that the term, quote, wildlife enforcement decoy, or WEDS, is capitalized. Like, you know, it's official government nomenclature. Anyway, the decoys are what you would expect. Big bucks with huge antlers standing broadside to the roadway. Oregon has so far busted four would-be poachers shooting at the decoys from the road after illegal hunting hours and, in at least one case, with the aid of artificial light. I know many of us have had the terrible experience of taking a shot at an animal and having that animal remain completely motionless. But this puts a different spin on that. I suppose it's good strategy by Fish and Wildlife to broadcast the use of these decoys far and wide to dissuade Oregonians from giving into temptation and taking a poke at that deer of a lifetime just off the road. I believe in Montana, one of the well-used weds was referred to as Dirty Harry. Don't worry, whatever state you live in has something similar. Punk. Rangers from Colorado Parks and Wildlife recently improved the life of one particular elk who had been carrying a car tire around its neck for two years. We've talked a bunch about hunters passing on collared deer and elk because they seem kind of sullied by the hand of man, but an old tire for a necklace brings that feeling to a whole new level. The elk, with its tiresome burden, had been spotted by residents and captured on trail camps since 2019, and CPW officers had been hot on its treads ever since. But finally, wildlife officer Dawson Swanson was able to close the deal and hit the bull with a tranquilizer dart on October 7th. The officers had a short window before the sedation wore off, and after discovering a steel band in the tire that they couldn't cut through, they decided to saw the bull's antlers off and pull the tire over its head. The tire was full of at least 10 pounds of accumulated dirt, pine needles, and other crud. No antlers will likely mean a lonely 2021 mating season for this bull, but on the bright side, he is already looking much less tired. According to the CPW press release, this kind of thing isn't as unusual as you might imagine. Their list of the crap that deer, elk, moose, bears, and other wildlife get tangled up with includes swing sets, hammocks, clothing lines, furniture, tomato cages, chicken feeders, laundry baskets, soccer goals, mountain lions, bobcats, volleyball nets, holiday lighting decorations, and uh, I'm sure a bunch of other things. So, if in the next couple of weeks you see an elk with a human skull impaled on one of its antlers, relax. He was probably just grazing near a Halloween display. Probably. Moving on to the Montana desk. In a problem that would seem inconceivable to hunters just a generation ago, Montana has too many elk. Or at least too many elk walking into inconvenient places for some of us. 
Elk aren't dumb, and under hunting pressure, they move from public land onto private land, where Joe Public Hunter cannot follow. And wherever they are, they eat. Bull elk grow those beautiful antlers from scratch every year, and the material to make them has to come from somewhere. And that somewhere is often the private land of farmers and ranchers who are already hard-pressed to make a profit. This is known in many places as the elk tax. So, how to expand elk hunting on private land to control elk numbers? Following a statute passed by the state legislature last session, the Montana Fish and Wildlife Commission recently approved hunting access agreements for three large private ranches in the state, including one owned by Texas fracking magnates Dan and Ferris Wilkes. The special agreement gives these out-of-state landowners eight bull elk tags free of charge, and they can invite eight other hunters who already have an either-sex tag to hunt on their property. If those eight hunters want to pay the landowner for that privilege, they may do so. That's a pretty sweet deal, especially after Ferris Wilkes didn't draw a bull elk tag when he applied through the general out-of-state lottery last season. In return for this special setup, the ranch will allow 16 randomly selected hunters to go after cow elk on the property for five days. To someone learning about this situation for the first time, this might seem like a pretty good idea. Although, an earlier program in 2019, Montana resident hunters were granted much wider access to the Wilkes' property and killed over 300 cow elk. Free market hunting groups make the case that this provision and ones like it give landowners the incentive to manage their property for wildlife, while also allowing a certain amount of public access in return. This most recent arrangement is much, much more favorable to big landowners than similar deals in the recent past. The Wilkes brothers own a little over 358,000 acres in the state. A similar example of this type of management would be, of course, New Mexico, which we've discussed many times, where up to half of all available elk tags go to landowners, who can then turn around and sell those tags to the highest bidder. The result in New Mexico is so few tags remaining for the average hunter that draws have become increasingly difficult. New Mexico is one of the lowest income states in the nation. Hunting isn't just a pastime for a lot of people, it's a lifeline to food. Montana already has excellent incentives in place to make it worth a landowner's while to allow the public to hunt their land. The block management program gives landowners hunting licensing benefits, liability protection, livestock loss reimbursements, and up to $25,000 in compensation for allowing access. This general compensation is very different from granting transferable landowner tags. Namely, it doesn't provide a sense of ownership to public wildlife. Block management attempts to balance the hassle of people coming onto your land by providing compensation and providing as near a democratic system as possible to, you know, essentially everyone has an equal chance of being able to hunt. But each transferable landowner tag can fetch $20,000 or more depending on the unit with the option to sell a bunch of these tags to wealthy hunters, why would anyone decide to let regular people who they don't know come hunt for a once-a-year payment of $25,000? Let's go back to the Wilkes example. If they were to get prime rates for their bull tags, that's $160,000 for the year, plus whatever they can get for trespass fees. 
All of that in exchange for letting 16 public hunters have the opportunity to hunt cow elk for five days. Unless those 16 cow hunters can somehow manage to coordinate an effective elk drive to push the herd off the property completely, well, in my opinion, to quote the Duke in True Grit, that baby sister is no deal. That's all I've got for you this week. Thanks for listening. Remember, it's hunting season. If you need a clean, quiet, ripping little chainsaw for underneath the truck seat, just in case you get in a pinch, go to www.steeldealers.com and find the closest, knowledgeable, awesome steel dealer near you. They'll get you set up with what you need to get you out of a pinch or to just make the house look good. And most importantly, don't forget to write in to A-S-K-C-A-L, that's askcal at themeateater.com, and let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. I appreciate it. That's all I've got for you. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life, and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now, with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. Hey, I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some Axis Deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I, venison.com, and use promo code CAL for 20% off your first order.